From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Joyce Vance. How the hell are you, Joyce? I'm good, and it's really interesting that you would couch it in those terms this week, because it feels <laughs> like the kind of week that deserves it. Not just heck, right? <laughs> heck is too mild a word these days. We're, what, 30 days out, less than 30 days out from the midterms, so there's that. There is that. So as I said last week, my dad turned 83. We had a lovely birthday dinner Aww. over the weekend. And um, can I plug a restaurant, even though they don't pay me? Yeah. Cafe China on 37th Street in New York. Great, great Chinese food. Fun was had by all. I think my dad had a good time. Okay, it sounds like a date next time I'm up. Um, but your dad's not the only one with a birthday in your family, right? Well, everyone has a birthday because <laughs> everyone was, in fact, born. <laughs> okay, fine. Be a smart ass. <laughs> so do you have an upcoming birthday Yes, I do. Thursday, Thursday, October 13th. How old are you going to be? 29. You sound like my mother-in-law. 29. <laughs> no, I'm getting, I'm getting up there. I'm getting up there. I'm older than you, so you can feel good about yourself. But luckily, my kids simultaneously think that I'm very, very old. And at the same time, think I'm like a child. So it balances out. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. What are you going to do to celebrate your birthday? I'm going to be away on business, but then, I don't know, we'll figure out, we'll figure out <laughs> something to do. It's not the same as when you were nine. When I was nine, I, you know, my favorite birthday of all time, I often say, was when I turned nine and I got a lot of presents at a party and my parents took me to see the original Star Wars. Oh, wow. And like, what could be better than that for a nine-year-old boy? So now I'm super depressed because I was in high school when I saw the original Star Wars. I was actually at a summer debate program in Boston. And, of course and you saw were. It there. So I'm a lot older than you are. You are not a lot older than me. And you look younger, so that's what counts. I appreciate that. All right. Speaking of aging. <laughs> no kidding. This discussion of Mar-a-Lago and the various strands would age anyone, layperson, or lawyer who's paid to comment on these things like you and I are. Set the stage a little bit. We were talking before we began recording. You know, there's a lot of stuff here that people are focusing on because it's what's happening, right? And it relates to the former president of the United States. And it's peripheral to or adjacent to, or in some ways related to whether or not there'll be a criminal charge with respect to these documents that I believe everyone understands were mishandled in Mar-a-Lago, whether it reaches, you know, criminal dimension or not. We have to wait and see and see what the Department of Justice's decision is going to be. But we've got, maybe we can unpack it for folks. We've got Judge Cannon in the district court in Florida. You've got the 11th Circuit, which is the appellate court in Florida and other states. You've got another guy who's a special master, but also happens to be a sitting federal court judge in Brooklyn, Ray Deary. And you have now suddenly the bringing in of the Supreme Court because the, the Donald Trump team has filed an appeal directly to the Supreme Court via Clarence Thomas, who is the patron of the 11th Circuit. Are all these things equal? Are all these things important? Or are they a sideshow, Joyce? And I think you know my answer. Yeah, I mean, we call this a hot mess in the Deep South. And it, it really is. I think you're right, Preet, when you say we're focused on all of this stuff because it's what's happening above the surface. It's what people can see. In reality, most of it is completely peripheral to the only question that matters to me here, which is whether DOJ is going to indict Trump or not. And that question isn't controlled by this litigation. DOJ is continuing to use the documents that it recovered from Mar-a-Lago, at least the classified ones, to conduct its criminal investigation. And that's the ballgame. Yeah, I mean, the most important ruling, probably, that relates to the most important question, as you frame it, and I think you frame it perfectly, is that the 11th Circuit has already reversed a decision by Judge Cannon, who I think a lot of people are having trouble with. We can get back to her in a moment. And that is, can the DOJ use the 100 or so classified documents in connection not only with the National Security Review, but also in connection with their criminal investigation to see who has criminal liability and exposure for the handling or mishandling of these documents? That's not even, as far as I can tell, being challenged by the Trump folks anymore. The issue of those 100 documents and their review by the government for purposes of determining whether there should be a criminal charge, they're free and clear on that. Am I right? 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, and to make things even more interesting, the former president seems fully committed to helping DOJ make out its case against him, you know, being recorded over the weekend saying things like, I only had a few boxes of documents and I want all of my documents back. As a, as a former prosecutor, I'm salivating at the opportunity to play that video for a jury. Yeah, I mean, some people on social media have said, there's the former president confessing. It's not quite a confession, but it's not it's good. It's pretty damn close. Because he's, he's talking about, you know, his personal involvement. He's admitting things while at the same time suggesting, as he's done before, the documents were planted and he didn't have them there, but that he wants them back anyway. It makes no sense. And his lawyers, only in the most oblique way, are making the assertion that we addressed before on the show of whether or not Donald Trump could mentally and telepathically declassify documents without telling anyone or without making any notation or without following any process. And all that stuff gets jumbled together. But, the, you know, we can unpack it further for folks who want to understand the proceedings. But the bottom line, take it from me and Joyce, is that the issue of criminal exposure and the investigation of that is well underway. It's the fundamental question here. And some of the stuff affects that, but largely uh, it does not. So, so one of the ways the pending litigation may have an impact on the criminal investigation of Trump, which is a central issue, is with respect, and we talked about this last week a little bit, with respect to these other documents, these you know thousand plus documents that the Department of Justice says they want to make sure they have access to so they can make determinations about commingling of those documents with the classified documents, which would establish agency and intentionality on the part of Donald Trump and others. That issue is before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. They made one decision, as we discussed a moment ago. This is pending. And we last week talked about whether or not the 11th Circuit would agree to hear the matter on an expedited basis. We predicted that they would. And what did they do, Joyce? They did precisely that. They expedited not quite as fast as DOJ wanted them to, but certainly more quickly than Trump wanted to. Can, can we talk for a moment about just sort of a boring procedural issue here that I may be the only person that's interested in? I live for the boring procedural issues, Joyce. That's, that's why people tune in. You know, if you like legal arcana, then you should litigate in the 11th Circuit because we do like our own local rules and procedures here. So I, I was fascinated to see that this decision to expedite was signed off on by one judge, Bert Jordan, who is an 11th Circuit judge in Florida. That is not predictive, by the way, about who will sit on the panel that decides this case. This is the interesting point to me, is that in that order, Judge Jordan says that he has consulted with the 11th Circuit's chief judge, that's Bill Pryor, who sits in Birmingham, Alabama, and that they have decided that they will assign this case to a special panel. And what that means in the 11th Circuit, these panels that hear oral argument and that decide cases are drawn up months in advance. And so the clerk's office, when a new case comes in, say today, assigns it to the next panel with a vacancy, and that can be a long period of time out. In essence, what the 11th Circuit has done is they've said, we're not going to wait for the next regular panel with an opening. We'll use a specially convened panel off of our classified docket, and we'll go ahead and get this case moving. Although this might seem slow to normal people, we're looking, I think, at a decision at some point in December. This is lightning speed in the 11th Circuit, and this signals, if nothing else, sensitivity to the importance of the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what we're talking about is a delay of some period of time. I, I don't think that the department was going to be making any decision about charging in the next 30 days anyway, and probably not till next year, maybe in the spring of next year. So I don't know how much this delays things. I think it's just a, you know, a brief hiccup. It could turn into something longer, but right now it seems brief. Let's, can we talk about the, because people have this question, the Trump team's appeal of the prior 11th Circuit decision, reversing Judge Cannon, right? They went straight to the Supreme Court and they're not seeking some sweeping reversal of the reversal, Right they're seeking something fairly narrow. They want to make sure that those 100 documents, the ones marked classified, 
are continued to be reviewed by the special master, Judge Jerry, who, by the way, has not been doing the Trump team any favors. I, I think it's important here and, and other times as well to accurately characterize the merits of a brief filed by one side or the other. And there have been times, and I've said this many times on the show, there have been times when, and frequently, there have been times where the Trump team files an unbelievably outrageous, frivolous, borderline stupid, mistaken filing, right? Here, I think they're on the losing side, but did you see Steve Laddick, our friend, Professor Steve Laddick's Twitter thread talking about the Trump emergency application to the Supreme Court? Here's how he characterized it. He said, it's not entirely laughable, though it is doomed to fail. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that that's dead on the money. Of course, we've only seen one side of it, right? DOJ's response isn't due until 5 p.m. on Tuesday. We're taping now on Tuesday morning. But I think Steve is dead on the money. This is an interesting jurisdictional argument about whether or not the 11th Circuit should have decided this issue at all. Again, you know, I think this is what happens. Trump finally gets himself a good lawyer. He pays $3 million to get Florida's former solicitor general on his team. And this is a fascinating issue for appellate lawyers. But ultimately, it doesn't bear much on the appeal because they haven't even asked the court to keep DOJ from using the 100 classified documents while all of this litigation is ongoing, which means essentially it's meaningless from the point of view of the most central question at issue here. Yeah, so why not? Why? That's kind of odd, right? I think when people were reading through the application to the Supreme Court, they were sort of wondering why aren't they, whether it's meritorious or not, why aren't they at least seeking to halt the investigation? It, it would have been a frivolous request. That has not stopped them before. Well, but, you know, now you've got the $3 million man, and I think this is a lawyer who's got some desire to hold on to his license to practice law at the end of his representation of the former president. It is a real interesting legal argument. You know, typically the courts can only hear on appeal district court orders that are considered final. There are some interlocutory orders. That means orders that are issued while a case is ongoing that can be heard on appeal. That sometimes requires a certification from judges, which which isn't the case here. But it's a, it's a very interesting issue. The 11th Circuit tried to head this off in a footnote, in their opinion, explaining why they had jurisdiction. If you're an appellate lawyer like me, you eat this stuff up. But it doesn't really matter a lot in the ultimate scheme of things here. Now, Joyce, you said something interesting a minute ago. You talked about the $3 million man and lawyers' interests in maintaining their license and maintaining credibility. That reminds me that there was some breaking news in the last day with respect to this issue that I have found to be very, very important. And that is the certification by a lawyer for Trump that all the documents sought by subpoena, all the documents marked classified, had been turned over. And we now know that that was false. We also now know that that was signed by Christina Bob, one of Trump's lawyers. We also have known before there was a request made to another Trump lawyer to do such a certification earlier. That lawyer refused because that lawyer had not done the searching personally and did not have a security clearance. So that's all interesting information and relates to the criminal exposure for those people. But then we learn that Christina Bob, who signed the false certification, has come in and spoken to authorities and according to reports basically said she was careful in the in the language she used to make the certification that she was making that declaration that sworn statement based on representations made to her and in particular those representations were made to her by another lawyer Evan Corcoran so who's in trouble here so it's an interesting question right i, I would say a pox on all of their houses but the first thing that I wonder, hearing Bob has gone in and spoken with prosecutors, is whether or not some sort of a cooperation deal is in the works with her. And I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about this, but it doesn't look to me like that's where this is. This looks more like the sort of situation where a lawyer takes his client in in an effort to convince prosecutors not to prosecute, saying, you know, I have no liability. It's almost like Bob is saying, 
I was really smart here. I knew there might be a problem, so I inserted this special language into the certification that I was directed to sign by a lawyer who was too smart to sign it himself. You know, none of this, I think, is favorable for for Bob. She might think that she has a technical out. I don't think it looks that way here. I guess what's confusing, and I've been a lawyer for a long time, is why do you sign a thing in such a fraught proceeding and in such fraught circumstances when you are not the person who has done the searching, you're not the person who's in a position to have personal knowledge about whether the documents have been turned over. You have reason to doubt the word of the people who are telling you that all the documents have been turned over. There's been this back and forth for some months. You maybe even know that there was a different lawyer, a third lawyer, who refused to do so. Why do you do so? Do you want to maintain yourself in the good graces of Donald Trump or something else? And then if it's the case that the representation is being made by Evan Corcoran to Christina Bob, why the hell isn't Evan Corcoran signing the attestation? These are questions that I don't know the answer to. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like she signs what they call a certification, except that it's got this, you know, what she now says is a clause that makes the entire document meaningless. So look, if you're a lawyer making that kind of a certification, that's just like waving a big red flag that you know that there's a problem. And I think that there will be a lot more that we'll hear about the lawyers, you know, this trio of lawyers who were involved in deciding whether or not to certify that Trump had turned everything over. And I think that they may be in trouble criminally, and if not criminally, perhaps with their respective bar associations. Do you think DOJ should have done something differently with respect to accepting the certification? And as I'm asking the question, it occurs to me, well, there's no such thing as accepting or not accepting. They asked for a document, they got a document, and it is what it is, and it has that caveat and that clause in it. And we can then, as they are doing now, engage in the further investigation of who lied to whom about what and with what intent. But do you have a thought on that, if if DOJ should have pressed for something from someone with direct knowledge? You know, she signs off on this certification as the custodian of records. And that's a term that has meaning in the context of grand jury practice when you're issuing subpoenas for documents Typically, at least in my district, we didn't actually make the custodian of records show up and testify. Sometimes they did, but it was the more common practice that they would turn over the documents with a certification. But that was someone who was attesting that they had either reviewed the records themselves or directed that a review be undertaken. And they were representing on behalf of usually a corporate entity that all responsive documents responsive to the subpoena were being turned over. And that's not what Bob is doing here. She is just not the custodian of these records in any possible way. So I didn't really answer your question, right? I think your your insight is correct. DOJ, it's not up to them to accept it or not. They just look at it and and think, "Mm mm-hmm, this is interesting. Here it's a red flag. And it's fodder for further investigation. You know, and everything else. And what you have here, you know, the other thing that could have been anticipated And good lawyers anticipate this stuff. You you don't put yourself in jeopardy in this way and put yourself in a situation where everyone's pointing the finger in someone else's direction, which is what's going on here. And it's very rare and and unusual for all the people pointing the finger in other directions all to be lawyers. Like, you don't see that, do you? No, and, and the reality here is this is not a corporate document production. These are records that Trump personally had retained. And I've always thought it was real interesting that we get this certification from a supposed custodian of records when it's just Trump's personal papers. Why there was no effort to put him on the hook for this question of whether or not everything was being turned over, I think is interesting. And I suspect we'll learn more about that. Yeah. And the other question that we'll focus on when we know more facts, I guess, or unless you want to opine on it now, Joyce, is to what degree can prosecutors in the grand jury get details about all these maneuverings, given that we're talking about lawyers, and given that lawyers in certain circumstances, generally speaking, have the benefit of the attorney-client privilege? And is that privilege maintained when you have one lawyer telling another lawyer to sign something or making a false representation between and among themselves? How does that play out? I, I would like to know more facts about what was said, what the context was, who was present before 
I feel comfortable talking about the attorney-client privilege complication. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There will definitely be issues about whether there's a crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege here. And of course, any conversations that were had where third parties were involved, people who weren't lawyers, that can waive the privilege, but we just don't know enough here to assess how this all lands. Yeah, I mean, just, I think it was important to mention because it might look to a layperson that, well, somebody lied to somebody and a false representation was made that's that. That's obstruction in some form or another. But the layer of complication arises from the fact that they were, in fact, lawyers. Some of this is arguably within the provision of legal advice between and among advisors to a client, Donald Trump, and maybe to Donald Trump himself. So it's complicated. Maybe we need a special master to figure that out. (laughs) Well, and, you know, to make it even more complicated, right, Trump himself is out talking about this stuff and, and what he did. And it's possible that he may even have waived the privilege or parts of it himself. It's going to be a very complicated question. So the, the plot thickens further, Joyce. So we have these motions. We have these fights between and among the lawyers. Everyone knows now about the search at Mar-a-Lago. The documents were represented to have been returned. Turns out that they weren't. But even with respect to the documents, we don't have closure. And we understand now the DOJ has notified Trump that it has a belief or a concern that even as of today, not all the documents have been returned. Maybe there's some documents at Bedminster. Maybe there's some documents in New York. Maybe there remain some documents that were overlooked by the searching agents at Mar-a-Lago. Wouldn't that be crazy and counsel further in favor of a prosecution that if at this late date, after the subpoena, after the certification known to be false, after litigation in four different forums, including the Supreme Court of the United States, that humans who work for Trump and Trump himself have not scoured every corner of the Trump universe and returned everything. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally, my view is that there are already enough plus factors to merit prosecution in this case. If at this point Trump still has stuff that he's hiding, I, there's just no other option. It's like, you know, he's begging DOJ to prosecute him if this is the case, that he still has particularly classified material. Yeah, I mean, I don't even understand. You know, sometimes we talk about whether briefs are frivolous or whether they are, you know, a little bit laughable, whether they have some merit, but it's just the lesser argument, the less meritorious argument. And then sometimes I just find myself utterly baffled, not even annoyed or angry, but just utterly baffled. In what universe do you not direct a team of people at this point, even just so the lawyers know? Maybe you have an argument that you're going to make that'll be frivolous as to why you get to keep the document because, you know, Trump's defense is mine, 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 (laughs) Uh, which is a term of art in property law. I don't know if you remember that from property law. Mine, mine, mine. (laughs) Mine, mine, mine. Even if you're going to do that ultimately, shouldn't the $3 million man who I guess came along fairly recently, but shouldn't he and the the $1,000 men and women have undertaken the most rigorous search in the history of representations to be sure they know what remains. Maybe they've done that. And then we're just speculating about a hypothesis, which per Miller's crossing, you're not supposed to do. You know, it's complicated because as the January lawyer, Alex Cannon, who declined to make the certification, pointed out he couldn't search and he directed other lawyers not to search because there were classified documents, they thought, and none of them had security clearances. So so that's really complicating. And I suspect there hasn't been any kind of a fulsome search, at least by the lawyers. But Chris Kyes, our $3 million man, he did propose that an outside firm be brought in to do an audit of the documents, and he was shot down by the other lawyers on the Trump team who didn't want to do it. That speaks to so much dysfunction and and almost, I don't know if willful blindness is the right term, but almost an implicit acceptance of the fact that Trump still is in possession of documents, which I think frames this conversation that DOJ had with Trump's lawyers. It sort of reminds me, I mean, not that there is a wiretap up here, but it makes me think of times when, you know, if you were up on a wiretap, you'd try to tickle the wire by doing something that would give participants in criminal activity a reason to have concern just to see how they'd react. It would be interesting to know what the internal reaction in the Trump camp was after DOJ said, 
hey, we think that you guys are still criming. Yeah, and I should point out that, that a lot of this reporting comes from an article in the New York Times a few days ago by Michael Schmidt, who has this passage that I thought summarized the complications for DOJ pretty well. And I wonder what you think of it. And Schmidt writes, quote, Trump's apparent reluctance so far to cooperate puts the department in the fraught position of having to decide from among an array of difficult choices, including whether to give up on trying to obtain the documents, issuing a subpoena for them, obtaining another search warrant, or pushing for Mr. Trump to attest under oath that he has handed over all the materials in his possession, end quote. It's a little bit of a nutty situation. It's utterly insane. And I mean, it's what you get when you have someone who's gotten away with dishonoring the rule of law, thinking that it doesn't apply to him for so long. This is this is the ultimate ridiculous extreme that we end up at. And I think Mike frames it perfectly there. What, what do you do if you're DOJ? I mean, I suppose you could issue a grand jury subpoena. That's a very unusual thing to do to a target of an investigation. But you could do it. He could always assert the Fifth Amendment and give him the opportunity to say whether or not he's turned it all over. So we'll wait to see DOJ's response in the Supreme Court case and what arguments they're offering. We'll know a lot more about this, but I don't think any of this massive confusion is going away. More next week. More next week. So there's another story coming from reporting intrepid journalism that some people might think is nefarious because it suggests a leak that was inappropriate, but we don't know. And that's from the Washington Post, and it relates to Hunter Biden. Remember, Hunter Biden has been under investigation, federal investigation, by his own admission for a few years now, going back to the Trump administration. And to remind people, that investigation that began before his father, Joe Biden, became the president, continues. It is being handled by the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who is a holdover from the Trump administration, David Weiss. Uh, Joe Biden, in his discretion, did not replace the United States attorney, who was publicly known to be investigating his own son, which I want to come back to that and make a point about that in a moment. But the Washington Post reports that, for what it's worth, the agents in the case, one or more agents involved in the investigation of Hunter Biden, believe that there is sufficient evidence to bring charges in two categories. One, relating to his taxes, and two, relating to false statements he may have made on a form when he bought a firearm. And those false statements, presumably, relate to a certification he made. We're talking about certifications today in multiple topics. That he was not addicted to narcotics when, by his own admission, in a book he's written and in other places, basically said during the time period in which he bought the gun, he was an addict. And I think the stories about Hunter Biden's addiction and the pain that has caused his mother and father are, are fairly well known. So does that mean he's going to get charged? Does that mean he should get charged? Um, I know you have a view and I have a view, but why don't you go first? We can skip over for the moment the issue of, of how this story came to light. But I think we should go back and talk a little bit about reporting that the agents have a view that the case should be prosecuted before we get too far down the road. That said, I do have a view here, but my view is different on the two charges that you mentioned. Tax violations, if there's evidence that Hunter Biden violated tax laws with his conduct here, and if it's the kind of case that's amenable to prosecution, then he should be prosecuted. Whether he's the president's son or not doesn't make any difference. But this gun charge, the lying and buying charge, is so far outside the heartland of cases that get prosecuted that it's just not even on the radar screen of the kinds of cases that get prosecuted here. And I think that one's just a, a non-starter. And let me just say, this is the kind of prosecution that we would call lying and buying, someone who lies on the form that they fill out to get a gun. And these prosecutions are reserved almost entirely for what's called straw purchasers, someone who's ineligible to buy a gun because they have a felony conviction or, or whatever reason. So they send in their girlfriend, a family member, a stranger that they pay to go in and, and buy the gun for them. And, and on that form, the 4473, you have to certify that you're purchasing the gun for yourself and that person lies about it. Those are the kind of cases that get prosecuted, not the person who's lying about whether they have drug addiction, which is the allegation against Hunter Biden. And it's pretty easy to understand why those cases don't get prosecuted. And it's because it would be a never-ending stream of, of people who are doing that. So 
you know, I think that's a long-winded way of saying not everything that's a technical violation of the law gets prosecuted. We know from statistics in Delaware that very few lying and buying cases actually get prosecuted. And in Delaware, as in other parts of the country, these tend to be these sorts of straw purchaser cases. I don't disagree with you, but I think it's worth noting that there are a couple of different reasons why these kinds of lies may not be prosecuted. One is maybe it doesn't meet the threshold of what's in the interest of justice. I'm not sure about that. But the other is that generally speaking, you don't have the evidence. You don't have a paper trail with respect to someone's use of drugs. And what does it mean to be addicted? You know, there's a definition in the law. It's a little bit murky. What's the difference between being a casual user? How long in time from the moment that you purchase the firearm or attest to various facts in connection with the purchase of a firearm? Have you taken a narcotic or not? Here, separate and apart from the issue of whether or not it's an appropriate charge, you have almost uniquely someone who's a public figure of sorts, who's obviously the son of a very, very important public figure, who has made admissions publicly and in a book about his addiction, you don't often have that. And what you you more often have is testimony of somebody who cooperates or admits that the gun was not being purchased for the person who went in and filled out the form, or the most common way in which gun crimes are sometimes charged in the federal system. Someone is ineligible to possess a firearm because they have a prior felony conviction. And obviously that paper record is very strong and very robust and hard to disprove. So it's it's A, an issue of discretion, and B, an issue of proof, right? Yeah, but but I'm going to push you a little bit on this. I agree that if you were ever going to prosecute, you know, a case that involved an addict who purchased a firearm, that the evidence in this one would be better than most. But there are a lot of people, a lot of public figures who go to rehab for drug issues, who are known to possess and and to use firearms, which they presumably purchased or had someone purchase for them. And so I think what we would be saying if we thought that this case was an appropriate federal prosecution is that it would be open season on all public figures. Now, look, you might think that that's a good idea, right? I mean, the law does, after all, say that people who are drug addicts have to be honest about that on these forms. And and there's another law here, 18 U.S. Code 922G, which says that it's illegal to be in possession of a firearm if you're addicted to drugs. So this could open up a, a whole branch of prosecution for DOJ. They could use a lot of resources on these cases and do them. I think the point that I'm making is if I were making the decision, I wouldn't start such a bold new direction in enforcement in criminal law with Hunter Biden. Well, what's also peculiar about this, taking another context of the particular people involved, you know, the son of a sitting president of the United States and all that, generally speaking, we've talked about this and we'll talk about it again, the trend on the part of conservative prosecutors and judges and courts is to remove restrictions from firearm possession. And particularly in cases where there's discretion uh, to not prosecute someone for exercising their Second Amendment right, if you believe that to be true, to possess a firearm, we don't take that right away from them except in very, very, very strong circumstances. And this, the statute you mentioned, 922G, which is a staple of federal criminal prosecution, prosecuting people who possess firearms after having felony convictions, you know, there's some doubt that every court will continue to uphold that statute because there's the view that the Second Amendment right to possess a firearm is so strong and such the default position that these impositions of regulations, including felony convictions, and everything else should fall by the way. So there's some irony here that we're talking about a holdover from the Trump administration with respect to a, you know, a Democratic son of a Democratic president and this being the legal question at issue. Or am I making too much of that? No, I think you're dead on the money, right? It's laws for thee, but not for me. So people read this story. And at first blush, if you've not been involved in law enforcement, you say, well, the agents think there's a case to be brought. Then what else is there to do? And so I I thought we should address for a moment the distinction between the roles of law enforcement agents and prosecutors. It's the prosecutors who make the decision. I always did that, and I think my people always did that, always did that in consultation 
with the FBI agents or the cops or the DEA agents. And there was a robust discussion. And your team, right? You work on the investigation together. At the trial, if there's going to be a trial after a charge, there's a case agent who sits at the table on equal footing, although they typically don't speak to the court, but they testify at the trial sometimes. It is very much a partnership of equals in connection with the entire matter. But the prosecution decision lies solely with the lawyers, with the prosecutors, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I can count on one hand the number of times that an agent, after working a case for a couple of years, looked at me and said, I don't think we should prosecute this one, right? The agents always are invested in the case at this point in time. Yeah, I I saw you. It was interesting. I was thinking about that. I made a note of that. I saw you say that on TV the other day. I think that's sort of generally true. It's also generally true of prosecutors. I mean, as a general matter, when you spend a lot of time, more often than not, you feel like you have the goods. Prosecutors have to be more careful because they understand the pitfalls. They understand, you know, how they have to defend a conviction on appeal. There are various layers of review. You know, they, they know, understand the statutes in a way that they have to be responsible for. And it's their names that go on, you know, the documents. The U.S. attorney's name goes on the indictment and on the criminal complaint if there's a criminal complaint first. In my experience, while it is true that, that agents, I guess, on the whole are more aggressive about charging than prosecutors. I don't think that's always true, but you know, maybe on the whole, that's a little bit true in my experience. That on those occasions where the prosecutors thought there was something lacking in terms of proof or in, in being able to prove the elements beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't recall that often there being a fight. You know, the agents, sometimes you talk about this with the supervisors, you get a meeting and, you know, in, in a back and forth in good faith, you discuss, you know, whether or not there's enough proof. And generally speaking, again, everyone understood. Do you recall moments when there was a, a huge fight and, and a flare-up because the prosecutors didn't want, want to go forward and the, and the agents did? You know, I can't say that I can recall very much, maybe one or two times, where there was actually something that I would characterize as a flare-up. But mostly it's just a very robust discussion about the evidence and whether the evidence is sufficient, which, which is the issue. Of course, the agents, they get their statistic at the point in time where the case is indicted. And as you say, prosecutors have to continue on and try the case and, and worry about the appeal. And so they tend to view things a little bit more critically through a somewhat different lens. And I can recall situations where we looked at the evidence and the agents really wanted to sort of let the jury hear the evidence and decide the evidence, where I might have had more concerns about whether the evidence would be sufficient when a three-judge panel took a look at it on review. And so in, in those cases, what you often do is you have that conversation and the investigators go out and do some more work. But what I take away from the reporting here is that that process has come to an end, that there's been investigation, that if there were any gaps in the evidence, it sounds like there's been an effort to fill them. And if this reporting is, and as you point out, we don't know for sure, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it sounds to me like some agents have decided to talk with the press about this case and that suggests that there's a breakdown where the agents think that there's enough and the prosecutors think that there isn't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, I, I, should, I should disclose that the main lawyer for Hunter Biden who gets quoted, Christopher Clark, Chris Clark, is a former colleague of mine from the Southern District of New York. And he has understandably issued very strong statements about the leak and is deeply concerned about it and is worried that it's going to affect the process, which I think is only natural and legitimate. We don't have enough information. It's hard to get to the bottom of leaks because for, among other reasons, members of the press who are in the position to know who gave them the information that they report have, you know, a, a, a belief that they have a privilege against revealing those under penalty of contempt of court. And there are guidelines within the department about issuing subpoenas to report. You know, so, so people understand that the department can't just willy-nilly send a subpoena from the grand jury to a reporter who wrote the story saying that agents say this, that, and the other thing because there's department guidelines against that and there are legal protections depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So what you end up having to do, if you're going to do it at all, is a roundabout kind of investigation and inquiry where you're asking the agents who are involved, 
did you tell anybody? And if you want to persist in lying, you can. The simplest and easiest way as a matter of efficacy is to go to the reporter. And that's the one thing you can't do. Exactly. And, and of course, the problem here, in addition to the legal issues, if, if it's true that agents talked about a grand jury investigation, that's problematic. But also, by going to the press, this is an effort to put, I think, pressure on prosecutors. And that's unseemly, separate and apart from any sort of criminal violation that might have occurred here. I got a question for you. Yeah. And then I want to make a statement. I want to get on my high horse for a minute. But my, <laughs> question, my question is, and I do that only sporadically. My question to you is, so the U.S. attorney is David Weiss. I think it's an extraordinary thing in the current climate that he was asked to stay on, was not transitioned out like every other U.S. attorney in the country. And what is the role of Merrick Garland? Is he going to be completely laissez-faire, hands off, just advise me of your decision, Mr. Weiss? Or, and I think this probably is what I would do, I think, is he going to want to be advised of the decision and the proof and largely defer to it because why get involved? Except holding out the possibility that if it's an extreme miscarriage and an extremely aggressive and improper indictment, as I say that I don't even like this, so I'm even going to go back to the first posture, that only in, in the case of a judgment by Merrick Garland that it's an abuse of power would he get involved or do you think he's going to oversee it in the way that Bill Barr would have, which is to say substitute his own judgment for that of the sitting U.S. attorney in Delaware? What's the best option and what will he do? You know, we know that Garland is is just no Bill Barr. And in fact, he testified in a Senate hearing about how the Justice Department will handle the case. He talked about Weiss. He said that he was in charge of the investigation, that there wouldn't be interference, you know, nothing political, nothing improper involved in the case. And literally makes the point that they have left this investigation in the hands of somebody Trump chose, right? So will there be oversight? Absolutely. If there was something that was horribly abusive in this process and you're the attorney general, I think that you're ethically and duty bound not to let the case go forward. But absent something absolutely extraordinary, I think he'll let Weiss do his job. And look, David Weiss is a career guy. He's served in both Democratic and Republican administrations before being Trump's choice to be U.S. attorney. That's not an unusual path. You know, my path was the same. I was actually hired by a Republican U.S. attorney served in administrations of, of both stripes, was the appellate chief in, in my office during the Bush administration. David Weiss is a professional and a career guy, and I think Merrick Garland will let him do his job. Can I get on my high horse now? Yes, please. I think I was just on mine. No. <laughs> that, was like a medium, that was like a medium horse. <laughs> Maybe this is not the right phrase, high horse. Well, now I'm going to judge the horse. I want people to engage in a thought experiment. As you think about what Biden has done, what Merrick Garland is doing or may or may not do. And you hear from people around you who may criticize the decision to go forward or not to go forward. Just for a moment, before you rush to judgment about the decision that will be made, think about what would happen in the reverse scenario. Donald Trump comes back to office in 2024, and there's an open investigation publicly known by the United States attorney in, say, the Eastern District of Virginia, right? with respect to Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., right? Is there any effing universe in which Donald Trump would not remove the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia and or not appoint someone as attorney general who would commit to not prosecuting Donald Trump Jr.? Do you think in any universe that you can imagine that Donald Trump would have taken the same hands-off approach that Joe Biden has with respect to his own flesh and blood son? No. So just as we, as we think about the way in which this is going to get decided and deliberated upon, just let's all recognize the way it would have unfolded if the shoe were on the other foot. So I think this is a really important exercise. And, and you know, in so many ways, there's a double standard that continues to be used where Trump is concerned. And we see that play out in Mar-a-Lago. Any investigation that involves him gets the kid glove treatment. Everything's special. All of these new procedures are used. And, and that's not true when it's other people up to and including Hunter Biden. We are due for a restoration of the rule of law in this country. So how's that for a high horse? 
No, it's pretty good high horse. And, and by the way, to further the thought experiment, imagine a circumstance in which some prosecutor federally charges Donald Trump Jr. and gets a conviction from a jury of his peers. Is there any world in which Donald Trump does not pardon his son? Or maybe even, if, depending on the timing, preemptively pardons his son. You know, the only reason I'm going to hedge my bets is because I don't think that Donald Trump is any Joe Biden when it comes to how much he loves his children. But all things being equal, you know, if, if there's no risk to Trump, yeah, I think he pardons his son every day of the week. Joe Biden, I don't believe, will pardon his child, won't even consider it seriously. So we'll follow what happens with respect to the decision-making in the Hunter Biden case. And by the way, you know, if a charge gets brought, as I've argued before and I recite in my book, then the public will have an opportunity to judge the quality of the charges, the merit of the charges, the strength of the evidence. It'll be an open process. There will be a jury, presumably, if he goes to trial. It's also possible that he is charged and he decides to plead guilty and then you get closure much earlier. But we'll be able to judge all that. And if there's not a charge brought, you can believe there will be recriminations from one side of the aisle who believes very strongly that, you know, the game is rigged. It's going to be hard for that argument to be made, given that David Weiss is the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney and he's been unmolested in doing his job. We'll follow it and we'll see. But before we go, there's another issue we should talk about that's brewing that doesn't relate to criminal responsibility, but it's very, very important. And it's the issue of voting rights that I know is very, very important. And voting rights in Alabama, which obviously you have a deep personal local interest in, but everyone in the country should have an interest in. There was an argument in the Supreme Court with respect to the Alabama congressional map. How did that go and why is that an important choice? Not so well. Alabama seems to lead the nation in stripping out the protections of the Voting Rights Act. This is the Voting Rights Act of 1965, passed as a core civil rights protection. The whole idea was to make sure that Black people had the same rights to vote as everyone else. And it worked really well. The Civil Rights Act, which had to be re-upped every set number of years, was consistently re-upped by strong bipartisan majorities during Republican administrations. And, and then something changed. And that's something I think I would sort of earmark as the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder. The Voting Rights Act had a couple of different provisions. It had Section 5, the preclearance provision. And in essence, what that was used for was keeping discriminatory provisions, provisions that would impact the right to vote, from going into play. You had to take your new law if you were a state like Alabama or a jurisdiction with issues involving historic discrimination. You had to take it to a three-judge panel in Washington or the Justice Department for preclearance before you could put it into place. So that worked pretty well, right, Preet? Yes, it did. <laughs> you have that famous dissent from Ruth Bader Ginsburg about the umbrella and the rain. It's like saying, you know, I have my umbrella out in the rain. I'm paraphrasing here. But, and I'm not getting wet, so I might as well put the umbrella away. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court does. They collapse the umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm, and we find out that there are a lot of problems with people trying to protect their voting rights. But that's not enough for this Supreme Court. The, the provision that's left after we lose Section 5, which is meant to address problems before they occur, is Section 2, which lets you address problems after states have put their discriminatory laws into play. It's a way to challenge restrictions on voting until the Supreme Court decides a case called Brnovich and says, mm, not so much. We're not going to be able to use Section 2 to challenge restrictions on the right to vote. All that's left is the use of Section 2 to challenge voter dilution, or what we would call gerrymandering. And so we sort of rock on with the belief that there's just this small piece of the Voting Rights Act that's left. Everything else has been knocked out. The Supreme Court has already ruled in a case called Rucho that it won't address political gerrymandering. So states are free to do that. The only thing that's left is this notion of racial gerrymandering. So Alabama returns to the scene with Merrill. It draws a map after the most recent census only one of Alabama's seven congressional districts gives Alabama voters the opportunity to elect 
a Black representative or a representative who Black people play a role in selecting. And Alabama accomplishes that by drawing this absolutely insane map that reaches into majority Black downtown Birmingham and majority Black Montgomery and down into Alabama's Black Belt. So it's this long, stretchy sort of district that if you just look at how it's drawn, it's just sort of like the poster child for gerrymandering. And Alabama wants to have only that map in use. This is challenged, and it goes to a three-judge panel, as these sorts of cases do, Two Trump appointees, two district judges in Alabama appointed by Trump. The third judge is a senior 11th Circuit judge who was first put on the bench by Ronald Reagan, who was put on the 11th Circuit by Bill Clinton, Stan Marcus. And this panel has no trouble, in fact, they think it's an easy decision, to say that Alabama got it wrong and that there should be two districts where Black people, roughly 27% of Alabama's population, have the opportunity to elect a representative. So that's the issue that goes to the Supreme Court and gets argued. And the argument, Preet, didn't go so well. It's clear that the Supreme Court is intent on doing more damage to the Voting Rights Act or what remains of it. The only question is just how much damage will they do? Is it clear to you what the vote is going to be? It's not at all clear. I I think one takeaway, if you listen to the argument, was that Alabama may have overreached. Alabama made this argument, and we're seeing this show up in other cases, too. For instance, in the affirmative action case, where states like Alabama are taking the position that race can never be used as a consideration. And that's sort of nuts, right? Justice Jackson does this great job of talking about the reason that we have the 14th and the 15th Amendment and that they are meant to use considerations of race to address discrimination. Alabama's view is you just can't consider race. As long as the maps look okay, then we should go with them. And that's too much even for Justice Alito, who seems to suggest that there should be a more modest sort of a decision here that doesn't throw what remains of the Voting Rights Act on its head. So I think there's a conservative majority that will say what Alabama did is okay, and Alabama can use these maps. But perhaps what it won't do is completely throw out precedent like the Gingles case, which suggests that you do have to draw maps that are respectful of majority concentrations of minorities in certain parts of a state. Joyce, thank you for that primer. Very helpful. I'm sorry, that was like way too much. It was not way too much. It's actually not enough, and we just spend more time on it. But our time has come to an end. We'll follow all the news, breaking events, and everything else. Send us your thoughts, questions, recipes, etc. As always, to letters at cafe.com. We'll look forward to answering them. That's it for this week. Cafe Insider is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is Jake Kaplan. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is David Tatashore, Matthew Billy, Adam Waller, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, Namita Shah, Claudia Hernandez, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.